Welcome everybody to the 32nd episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas, and we discuss particular keywords. The keyword for today is mental health. And as guest, we have Jana Graham. Alan, would you introduce Jana, please? Indeed, I would. Jana Graham works in the visual cultures department at Goldsmiths uh, in the University of London. She is a practice-based researcher with a huge amount of curatorial experience for uh, numerous notable institutions, including the Whitechapel and Serpentine in London, uh, the Art Gallery of Toronto, the Project Arts Centre in Dublin and Nottingham Contemporary. Um, she um, has several academic works, including On the Edgware Road and Art Plus Care, The Future and Studies on a Road. So hello, Jenna. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Great to be here. So Jenna, the key term that we're going to explore today is mental health, but we're going to quickly move towards uh, institutional and group level of analysis. But before we do, what would be a good way to approach the issue, a good starting point to think about mental health? Well, I suppose, it, you know, it's a really pressing issue in some ways, but, um, and I should say I'm not um, a mental health practitioner, so I, I won't give you like a clinical definition of mental health. I would say um, I'm somebody who has worked um, with the healthcare system through the, the sort of um, arts and sort of critical theory practices, group analysis and, and collective work. So from that kind of perspective, mental health is a kind of suite of symptoms, um, which are related in some cases to challenges that people have faced, um, neurological issues, um, but and neurochemical um, issues, but also um, to a large extent um, configured by the social context in which they are embedded. And um, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is, is the sort of rise of the term mental health um, being applied as a kind of, um, I guess, homogeneous wrapping of these various kinds of symptoms that in many cases really um, should be addressed in their specificity um, and not as one kind of suite of issues because they're related to one another in very nefarious ways sometimes. And so um, the, the kind of perspective that I'm the most interested in, I suppose, and I, I don't discount the validity and importance of, of um, different kinds of therapeutic practices and um, pharmaceutical practices in some cases that um, act on individuals and on their individual struggles and symptoms. But I, the part that I'm kind of more interested in and which I think is underdeveloped in relation to mental health is the fact that many of these symptoms um, are on the rise because of social and political circumstances that we live within, you know, so, um, and, and in large part because of the kinds of institutions and the kinds of um, spaces that we inhabit and the cultures uh, and the toxicity of those cultures. So, you know, if we think of mental health, I work in the university, we think of mental health on campuses and there's a rise in mental health issues in campuses, that rise has been exponentially related to the um, increase of student debt and the financialization of the university. And we can't really ignore that as part of the configuration of the symptom. Sometimes when we call that mental health, we think of it as a sort of struggle of the individuals within those spaces and not as an illness of those institutions. So I suppose that's why I'm interested in pivoting our conversation from the broader category of mental health into a more specific discussion around um, the institutions and um, social and political practices that make us sick. And I'm aware that you 
relate to Felix Guterres' work on schizoanalysis. Could you explain what that means, please? I, I can talk about schizoanalysis, and I can I think more the the field of Guattari's work that I'm interested in, which which is related to schizoanalysis, is um is what's called institutional psychotherapy or institutional analysis, which is a kind of broader heading for a number of different practices. And so, where uh, many people, I guess, are interested in Guattari's and and his work with Deleuze and their configuration of the theoretical concepts, I'm a little bit more focused, I guess, on the clinical um, and political practice analytical um, practices that he was involved with. Um, and, and so he wasn't the only one, and he's part of a collective of people who were working on um, at the intersection of sort of left-wing politics and um, inhabiting the mental health care system in France within the sort of 1950s, 60s, um, and 70s. So I, yeah, so I think that, you know, when, when we think about um, institutional psychotherapy and where schizoanalysis is sort of born from that practice emerges as a response to um, post-war kind of series of mental illnesses and issues um, related to anxiety, post-traumatic stress, depression, um, and schizophrenia. And, you know, for Guattari, in, in short, schizophrenia was a point of, um, and as were other kind of um, symptoms, points of analysis and sort of modes of looking at the world uh, and looking at the world through the symptoms that it's producing. That moment in France was particularly important because there were a series um, or a whole host of institutions that have replicated some of the most violent perspectives or violent kind of um, practices and experiences that people had had during the war. You know, the barrack and the prison and all of these spaces that were, um, you know, incredibly traumatic for people during the war were in some ways still living on in the society, in the various institutions that people were living in, in the asylum, um, in the school. And so they, you know, they needed an analysis, a mode of sort of um, diagnosing the illnesses that those institutions were perpetuating. It was a time of extreme crisis, of financial crisis. And I think in some ways that's why institutional psychotherapy has a kind of broader context and schizoanalysis and other practices within it um, are so relevant to right now because we're also living through a crisis. Um, we're also living in a moment where the institutions that we're inhabiting are making us sick and they're no longer um, terribly relevant to the kinds of lives that we know we need to live. Jana, it would seem to me that the great schizoanalytic question, if you will, which is often, I guess, repeated in Deleuze and Guattari, would be, why do you enjoy, in a libidinal sense, why do you enjoy your own repression? There is a libidinal unconscious enjoyment in being subjugated, being repressed, being the target of fascistic desire, even when it indeed is targeted against you. So the question really then becomes, if the goal is to liberate desire from restrictions, how can you do so without immediately collapsing into fascistic forms of desire where you then desire the repression of others and you also uh, desire repression yourself? So this is what I've been keenly interested in. Uh, so what can, we, what can we say about desire that unconsciously is also invested in what we might call negative desire? 
obviously this is this is the big question also of um, institutional analysis that in many ways the desire to be subjugated um, is um, cultivated and perpetuated within the institutions that we inhabit within the school within the hospital um, you know that those tendencies um, and within obviously as we're seeing now within the broader political arena those tendencies um, produce uh, you know the kind of context um, the patriarchal context of the family and of the social that one ends enters into. So yeah, the question of how do you liberate um, other desires always with the knowledge that um, th- there's the, the kind of creep, this kind of creep of, of a more um, consolidated and a more authoritarian and fascistic kind of um, dimension to any experiment that you might engage in. But for Guattari and, and um, others who are involved in clinical work in La Bold and elsewhere, um, I think one of the key practices or the key questions were was not a matter of like um, liberating desire through, say, um, you know, a sort of euphoric moment or a kind of an outburst or a moment where repression is kind of sort of realized or released. It's much more to do with practices that reconfigure and recraft the institutions. Uh, remold was the word that, um, that Guattari used. Uh, remold those institutions as a way to start thinking about um, how we can liberate desire. So it's not the kind of um, catharsis it's, it's actually very precise and practical work of constituting different kinds of collectivities that allow for um, the liberation of desire. But in you know when they were experimenting with this kind of work in the clinic, this this meant very practical kinds of things. Um, you know, Guattari's term transversality is is really important here um, because um, what some of the work that they did in La Bold was to cut across the different um, practices of the institution and start to reconstitute the different relations. So doctors, for example, were asked to be involved in cooking. Patients were driving the cars to pick up guests of the clinic. Um, uh, Nurses would, you know, do some bits of care. There was a kind of um, this practice called the grill or the grid, which was essentially... um, you know, a reworking of the schedule of the everyday life of a psychiatric institution, whereby no one's roles could be fixed. And by virtue of that, sort of reconfiguring the conditions which produce deep repression and sort of experimenting and remolding our relationship to those kinds of um, fascistic or authoritarian kind of models. So the doctor doesn't get to be the doctor anymore. Then some of the basic configurations and building blocks of daily repression um, and of the institutional, how the institutional unconscious is configured in an authoritarian space, and by virtue of that, the desires that are embedded within that are released. But that's you know it's kind of slow and steady work, and it's a really different model than say the kind of you know access to the unconscious via the the single analyst and the relationship between the analyzer and an analysand which was more the Lacanian or Freudian kind of um, configuration. But still, the, the role of the unconscious, um, you know, they would say that the institution is, an, it does perform an unconscious, you know, it, there is an unconscious in, in an institution, in collective spaces and in group experiences. And that is often driving towards certain kinds of fascistic or, you know, authoritarian kind of desires, but that those are also reworkable, you know, and, and I think that that's important through through this kind of production of new institutions, new forms of implementing social realities.
So, Jana, if we continue on that and approach the idea of consumption and markets a little bit, um, of course, Deleuze and Guattari and a lot of other continental philosophy uh, dealing with desire is largely a reaction against a particular development uh, of Freudian psychoanalysis, also sometimes called ego psychology, I guess mostly championed by Anna Freud. Uh, which was all about the idea that you are supposed to be normalized and fixed so that you would be more productive and better functioning or highly functioning in society, this idea of oedipal normalization. And uh, of course, Deleuze and Guattari are quick to point out that in doing so, what of course gets uh, served is the logic of capital itself, the oedipal logic of capital that requires your production. So. I guess what Guattari was doing in practice in his clinic labord was not this kind of violent liberation of desire, but I guess it was sort of this gradual liberation from uh, societal roles that are imposed on you. These are, of course, what Freud indeed already recognized in his uh, civilization and its discontents. So in the form of institutional practice, is this kind of gradual reshuffling of societal expectations, in a sense, what was going on in Guattari's practice? Yeah, I mean, I love this um, coming from a totally different field and a different time and someone who actually d profoundly disagreed at times with Deleuze and Guattari, but um, Gayatri Spivak has this term that she uses in a text um, that she's written called Writing Wrongs. And it's, uh, she talks about pedagogy, and, and there is a whole relation to pedagogy, actually, in institutional psychotherapy that I'll talk about in a minute. But um, she talks about uh, pedagogy as um, the uncoercive rearrangement of desire. And I think uh, of this as, as sort of um, actually a really interesting and, and quite a good way of describing what's happening with desire in institutional analysis, institutional psychotherapy. Um, but this kind of question of, um, of this as a pedagogy, um, maybe rather than as a, um, I don't know, you know, a kind of uh, liberation, I guess, in the classic sense, or, or even a revolution in the classic sense as, as a sort of um, a reworking and a re-education of desire. Um, which is, I think, an, and an uncoercive one, I think is a really important sort of question because, of course, pedagogy doesn't work in, in a sort of one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, scenario that is sort of relatively time-limited. Pedagogy kind of goes on over quite a, quite a long period of time. That doesn't mean that there's specific interventions that couldn't have a profound and very fast impact. You know, if you think about work organizations that are incredibly authoritarian um, and the a kind of analytic group that was set up within them, which would immediately allow for um, conversation to take place about things that had been deeply repressed, that would actually have quite a quick kind of shift um, in the subjectivities of those people who are involved. And, and I think one of the things about um, thinking about subjectivity or subjectivation is that the institutions are producing these every day, so sometimes small shifts in the subjectivation of the people who inhabit institutions, who in some ways are the institutions, you know, the people who are performing the institution every day are the ones who are holding these kinds of authority structures in, in place. Um, their ability to sort of switch something might have a profound impact on the institution quite immediately. But in other cases, it, it is really the kind of slow process of holding space. And I've experienced that myself in sort of analytic groups in, in the university, for example, where we begin to 
you know, speak about things that have been deeply repressed for uh, years and years. And this is crucially related to the question of capital um, that you were talking about before in, in Deleuze and Guattari, because as the university becomes more financialized, we have on the one hand, the the old kind of um, cultivation within the academic academic field of, um, of ego, of, of personal, you know, drive for personal um, accomplishment, individual name recognition, um, all of these kinds of tendencies. Uh, but then you have, you know, the way in which capital and the sort of publishing uh, mechanism then operationalizes that set of desires. And so um, in universities, it, that becomes an incredibly useful um, tool, a disciplinary tool for keeping people in very individualized and less collectivized and therefore less resistant kind of um, positions. And in my experience of being in analytic groups in the university where we talk about those conditions and, uh, and our desires for them, you know, we start to then see um, a, a shift for example, in the staff meeting, even though we haven't planned to make a shift in the staff meeting, but the culture of the staff meeting starts to change, different questions start to get asked, different modes of mobilization start to form. So you can sort of see the way that, you know, there's there's there are kind of moments where, you know, certain kinds of desires are liberated, or at least the relief of talking, you know, <laughs> about, um, about the kind of various prisons that we live within um, has this kind of liberatory dimension, has potentially cathartic or euphoric even dimension. But the actual um, effect of that on institutions, I think, takes a little bit more time. And one of the things we had identified in our own analytic groups in, um, in, in Goldsmiths, where I am, was that we just holding a space and a time, a rhythm, you know, over time had an incredible effect on this uncoercive rearrangement of desire because we held time to um, prioritize the undoing of these mechanisms that were holding our sort of stress and anxiety and in some cases depression in place. Shana, this overlaps quite heavily with a previous podcast with uh, Stefan O'Harney, uh, who was talking about his work in The Undercommons with Fred Bolton. And um, I think the term that he would give to what you're describing in these meetings is studying. Um, and his point is that in an institution, once you engage in that serious type of studying, the antagonism gets quickly felt. Now, the organization doesn't like this type of uh, autonomous self-organization to, to happen, especially at the collective level. Is that your experience? I mean, yes and no. There's uh, and there's different mechanisms of kind of thwarting it. You know, on the one hand, um, you know, universities are spaces where, in some ways, you can study, and you you can study for a bit of time without being uh, felt or or seen. But there's a certain moment where that work becomes disruptive in a way that is definitely, um, you know, a kind of thwarting is attempted. A lot of the time, um, you know, particularly with this kind of studying, and I agree, it's it is exactly um, what what um, Fred and Stefano describe as study. You know what you find often is that it's they just constantly try and reroute it into you know the HR department's um, working groups for staff, for example, or if students are engaged in this work, they try and push it into the well-being narrative. And here's where we come back to the question of mental health because mental health has a whole uh, is an institution in and of itself, and it, it's very deeply at this point tied to production, productivity, and capital. Um, you know, on our campus, the, the going mantra for a while was um, be well, do well. 
it was really explicit um, what the mental health operation was, you know, that it was about fitness to study, fitness to pay fees, fitness to sort of, um, you know, be normal, I suppose, within, within the productive space of the university to graduate. So, yeah, so you, you find on the one hand, there's that kind of practice, which is a, a try, you know, sort of to say, well, you can't have resources for that kind of study that you do. You can only have resources if you want to, um, uh, if you take, take, make use of our kind of outsourced HR collective discussion practice or something like that. Um, the, but the other way is that, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, you know, for us at Goldsmiths, the analytic work um, has definitely fed into, for example, trade union work. And the two, and I think also for Guattari, this was something that he was, you know, straddling, you know, on the one side, sort of more left-wing politics, party politics, and the trade unions, and on the other hand, was was working in this kind of clinical practice. And you do see the way the one feeds the other, um, and that there's a kind of bravery <laughs> that starts to emerge through this kind of collective study that is seen as a threat. And yeah, there's many ways. I mean, currently, we're obviously, um, in my university, we're being definitely punished for that kind of behavior and that kind of disruptive, um, those kinds of disruptive elements, and also for our analysis that the institution is problematic, that the, that the kind of um, what, what we're being called upon to produce is problematic, that that diagnosis is, is the grounds for our sort of punishment at this stage. So there's, you know, there are all of these dynamics, and it, it's, it's in that sense, I suppose, dangerous work. And yet at the same time, um, dangerous work that does care for the people who are involved with it in a way that maybe um, some kind of left-wing politics don't have the ability to. I mean, certainly, um, you know, most groups that I've been a part of in, in left politics are really cognizant of this and sort of build care in and care and, and sort of thinking about our symptoms into practices, but there are many that don't. And as we know, there are many political projects that replicate um, patriarchal and authoritarian conditions. So, but there is a way in which this kind of practice not only is resistant or produces disruption within conventional authoritarian environments, it also can produce disruption within, you know, the left, uh, which is, positions itself not as an, an authoritarian environment. Focusing on consumption again, it really does seem that we do talk a lot more about mental health today. It, it gets more recognized. Doctors are much more prepared to diagnose such issues. There are a lot more ways of identifying it. So it does seem that uh, mental health is both more recognized and accepted as a serious condition in society today. But at the same time, of course, what's equally going on is that all of these forms are getting marketized much more as well. So now we have the idea of the medicalized consumer who I think is still rather fully seen as an individual now in charge of their mental health issues and related mental health consumption. That to me sometimes even seems to start to borderline lifestyle choices. So what do you feel about this general marketization of mental health and how that pervades in the social conscious nowadays much more? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the institutions that one one um, has to address. It's, it's really tricky territory because, you know, people are really suffering right now. Um, and I know this with, uh, you know, with my students, with my colleagues. And there are some, obviously, products uh, that people use, you know, and that they need and that they're completely reliant upon in the absence of... Um, 
you know, any grassroots community processes that are widespread um, in the absence of even basic access in some cases to mental health care um, through the state. So, you know, I have a kind of complex relation to some of these um, entities, but of course the general drive towards self-improvement, self-analysis, self-therapy, you know, um, uh, taking care of it on your own. Um, you know, this, there, there isn't a coincidental, I don't think, relation between the rise on the one hand of sort of the royal family talking about mental health issues and the market, you know, producing an, an incredible number of sort of products, but also um, a, an incredible demand for wellness, you know, and this is, we know this is part of that happiness and wellness um, are part of the kind of psychological project or the psyops kind of project of governments right now you know that the kind of push for people to be well in order to do well in order to participate actively in the economy um, or to follow you know to have the capacity to sort of follow along with um, the kind of policies of the day you know that's that is what um, is being cultivated at the level of sort of sort of discourse or healthcare discourse, but it's also being um, accelerated by the market. And something that I think um, students, you know, many of my students work on this topic because it's such a big part of their lives that kind of targeting um, of their generation with self-help kind of literature and even with targets, you know, there's many um, kind of social media platforms that sort of uh, start to target them with particular kind of goals that they should set around their mental health every day and, um, you know, sort of strategies that they should be using. There's a kind of surplus of this pressure also to be well that's being put on them by precisely the market. So there's such um, an entanglement there as with everything to do with capital at this point and, and our um, and our bodies and lives that, you know, there's such an entanglement between what the market's providing and what it's producing as a series of symptoms. And, um, and I think we see this really in particular with, with young people. And, and I, I would find, um, with young women, because that's who I tend to work with the most that, that those experiences that they're having are really, um, confusing because of the market, you know, because of the number of, um, strategies that seems that seem to be available to them and yet put enormous pressure on them to to be well and do well you know one of the ways of thinking about this and working through it is to um, form more um, regular collective practices and without this and and you know of course the rise of mental health issues the discussion of them the targeting of them by market kinds of products and other forces has um, really being um, exponentially increased by the the you know deterioration of society, you know Margaret Thatcher's kind of project, especially in the UK, but also in other places. So as that fabric, social fabric, has become more difficult to, to sustain because of longer working hours and, inst- and unstable housing and various other um, people needing to travel constantly to make a living to migrate all of the time, um, you know, these kinds of um, uh, sort of deteriorations of the social, the, the, the lack of community centers, the lack of youth centers, the lack of space for us to congregate have been really met by the this kind of huge self-help industry in the market. And those two things always have to be thought together, I think.
It's actually super interesting uh, because you see these critical notions arising increasingly in consumer research now as well, where even its most cultural and qualitative iterations uh, were pejoratively sometimes criticized as happy marketing. So there the idea of the consumer tends to still often be seen as rather agentic, lifestyle choice-making individual whose choices are fully meaningful. So a critical view of consumer subjectivity has not been very prominent until now. But now this has been indeed changing uh, gradually with the work of, say, Aliette Lambert, Stephen Dunn, Yanis uh, Gabriel, Alan and Detlev Zwick too, uh, where the fractured or fragmented notion of consumer subjectivity becomes fully focused on. So this subjectivity, of course, is then marked with endless competition, uh, momentary manic enjoyments, uh, constant production of more and more signs of consumption that operates from deep neurosis to narcissism on overdrive. Now, Alan also told me that you've been working with Mark Fisher, um, the late Mark Fisher. And of course, Mark Fisher's thesis in his Capitalist Realism is that all these mental health issues, such as ubiquitous uh, depression, anxiety, that they are not epiphenomenal to capitalism in any way, but actually part and parcel of its function and its facilitation. So literally, all these mental health issues should be seen rather as a driving motor of the consumer culture that we are witnessing. So do you think this is a useful way of approaching mental health within Western markets today? One of our responses or one of the reasons for our kind of departmental turn to institutional analysis was really based in Mark. Mark was in our department, uh, Mark Fisher, and a great colleague and um, a great thinker and somebody who was very actively in the workplace as well as in his writing, um, sort of working on this diagnosis, I suppose, of the institution and the role that it was playing in his life um, and also in, in all of our lives. And, and so I think this kind of question of, um, you know, yeah, narcissistic desire, the kind of uh, the modes of, um, of punishment within institutional culture, the kinds of um, endless feeling of being, not being good enough um, not being kind of worthy enough um, that are in the kind of humiliations that take place as our pedagogy within sometimes within the family, within the school system, you know, these kinds of rituals are in some ways what holds institutions together. And, and Mark, towards the end of his life, was talking a lot about consciousness raising, drawing from feminist and civil rights movements and thinking about how um, collectives, the only way through this really is for collectives to start to work together and to begin uh, consciousness raising processes. And, you know, that hadn't really happened in, in our work environment before he died, tragically. And in some ways, our response to his death was to create these kinds of working groups and to draw from also his interest in Guattari, but many of ours, um, and this was kind of collective journey of reading and diagnosing institutional culture. An institution here doesn't mean, you know, just the university. It also means the different kind of, um, you know, configurations of, of uh, capital. But also, I think really importantly in institutional analysis for Guattari and others, um, they make the more of a distinction between what they call establishment, which is what I've been 
calling institution here, um, you know, places like schools, universities, the family, um, you know, these kinds of um, archetypal configurations of power and relation um, versus institution, which they actually talked about as anything that institutes different kind of forms of sociality. So an institution could be a consciousness raising group um, that then starts to, you know, starts to work and remold um, the institutional fabric. And so, um, yeah, so Mark, you know, in some ways we've been doing this work in his legacy um, and also sort of with the knowledges of different practices and different histories. And that's important to say about Guattari and institutional analysis in relation to the question of pedagogy, which um, I know isn't our topic for today, but I think um, you can't really think the two apart from one another because, um, you know, in institutional uh, psychotherapy was sort of founded by Toscae, who is a, a Catalan militant kind of psychiatrist and, and militant in general, um, who, you know, came with the, had been in a refugee camp in, in France and started to do therapeutic work in the refugee camp and then was invited to a local clinic. And that's where he trained Uri. Uh, it's where he was sort of one of the people who was highly influential on Guattari um, and on Franz Fanon. And so there's, you know, it's a really important moment, but one of the, one of the, I guess, transversal lines with that practice of, of reworking clinics of, and of thinking about um, creating almost like what feminists would call consciousness raising groups, a number of groups within institutions who start to work on these different dimensions was that they, they were also really influenced by a practice in France in the 30s and 40s and 50s, which was called institutional pedagogy. Well, prior to that, it was called the École Moderne Movement, which is where schools were being, uh, you know, hundreds of schools in rural areas had been sort of taken over by a network of cooperatively oriented teachers who were um, setting up working groups throughout the school to both analyze and sort of govern the school. So schools would be sort of generated their everyday activities would be generated by teachers working in collaboration with different student groups on different aspects of the life of the school and they would then come together uh, in a kind of group of groups um, to talk about and democratically decide how the school would run and this was within the state system and so Guattari's teacher was somebody who had studied within this system and um, that that was the teacher that got him quite involved in kind of left politics and he happened to be the brother of Jean Nuri. So Guattari was was very involved in um, a whole set of, um, you know, of these kind of consciousness raising or other kinds of practices which were tangibly trying to work on small group democratic process. So I think, you know, with Mark, I think that was where Mark was getting to, you know, in terms of... Um, his ideas about what what the remedies in some ways might look like um, for the situation, and and so yeah, the work that we do is very much in that in that legacy of both the diagnosis of the institution um, as as being ill, or the the university in our case as being ill as producing a series of illnesses, but also with the idea of instituting different kinds of practices as some kind of therapeutic slash analytic process that we can engage in together which doesn't discount the need for you know people do need other kinds of care and we don't um i think maybe we'd be a bit different than the anti-psychiatry movement for example which in britain would really say any institution of um, health care must be or of mental health care run by the state should be evacuated um and sort of expelled and a new 
community-based therapeutic practices should be initiated in their place. But, you know, institutional psychotherapy took a different tack, which was to say we need to actually be in these institutions, which are incredibly toxic spaces, in order to rework our relation to them and our relations to authority and our own desires, narcissistic and otherwise, which, which hold the institutions in place. In some ways, they are the bricks and mortar of the institutions, which and, and of capital, which is what Mark would argue. You know, you can say that these institutions are buildings, but actually they're held together by desires, um, by different configurations of desire. I wonder how big you want to define these institutions. So the state, for example, um, is also something, it seems, that's completely tormenting us especially right now during coronavirus. So Brexit is is a good example of the sort of fragmentation and pandering um, to to, to people who are are, um, actively trying to disrupt. Uh, And of course, Trump in America is is, uh, the next level of extremity, so it seems. I'm reminded of something David Eggers wrote uh, in an essay where he was reminding us what it was like with the days of Obama, where the president was um, you know, serious, conscious uh, of his behavior and uh, the responsibility of office, um, you know, it just generally held himself in a level of decorum, which he said was, was just very reassuring everywhere. And that once power starts to behave in this mad and erratic way, it, 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 it torments everybody and you have this kind of infectious um, uh, madness, so to speak. Do you think that's a good way of thinking about how we relate to the state? Yeah, I mean, again, the state is kind of different in different moments, you know. So, and, and, you know, like the moment we're in, it feels sometimes like the state and sometimes it just does feel like um, generalized madness, you know. And I think, but it's interesting to think about for whom you know, Trump is experienced like generalized madness and for whom he's experienced as a patriarchal authority who holds uh, one in place. And I think, you know, we have to recognize that, um, that not everyone feels that he's perpetuating madness, you know. For some people, they see him as the, you know, the, the figure of everything that, um, that holds them in a certain kind of um, stable reality, which is the reality of authoritarian capital, you know, that, that, that there's a desire and a sense that that's actually the restoration of order for some people, whereas it is the kind of experience of complete and utter madness for, for others. And particularly, you know, I would say that that's the case. And um, for, for many of us who are like sort of living under this moment, not only with Trump, but also with, um, with Johnson and the regime in the, in the UK, which feels you know like an endless series of crises you know right now we have the military on the streets in Leicester handing out test kits and as though that's a kind of normal activity and I think we you know and the kind of madness of that 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 coincides at the same time with their their kind of um, your sense that they are taking care um, of the situation and I think for some people that and for some kind of um, configurations of desire that authority figure who is mad but also um saying the same thing again and again you know we hate migrants um 
you know, we hate uh, the left, we hate snowflakes. It's a mantra that is has a stabilizing effect, I think, for certain, you know, kinds of people. I mean, people I've met who are Trump supporters really just say that, that he just, that he's, you know, kind of, the, he's like the father of capital, you know, <laughs> he holds it all in place. And, and that desire um, you know, that kind of desire for the patriarchal, authoritarian and capitalist, in our case, um, authority figure can't be discounted, needs to be uncoercively or rearranged, but it can't be discounted um, as, as an experience of madness for those people. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's madness for, in order to, to uphold a kind of mad upholding of this kind of the only underpinning kind of structure we have at this point um that's that's a dominant one which is the the kind of capital you know the kind of racist patriarchal capitalism <laughs> and people are there are people who are attached to that what are the hallmarks that you can recognize of people relating to their employer either plea I mean, it's interesting. When I first came to the university, because I hadn't worked in full-time in universities for most of my 20-year kind of career, I'd been in cultural institutions who have, you know, to varying degrees undergone fairly massive restructurings and uh, are, to a large extent, sort of, you know, the boards of governors are financiers and, um, uh, you know, big business kind of tycoons. So you have already had this kind of sense that your management are um, sort of aligned with those forces. Whereas I think in the universities, there's there's been a real shift, you know, in moving from the university as a public institution to this financialized institution. And I think people's expectations and their desires have really not shifted um, accordingly. And somehow the social, you know, the social net provided people with uh, some degree of uh, this kind of Oedipal configuration, you know, there's the state and then your boss who was taking care of you as a member and as a part of a public institution. And um, I think one thing that I noticed was that people, including students um, in the university, were expecting that the management, they were disappointed that the management wouldn't take care of them you know, that it wasn't taking care of them. And I found it quite amazing, you know, when I arrived, because for so many years, I've thought of management as, um, you know, being the antithesis of taking care. You know, I've not expected that they would perform the role of a parent or as a, of a secure kind of um, environment for me. I've understood them to be dangerous. But I think this kind of desire, or this kind of expectation, I mean, of course, they should take care of us by law. They should be observing our rights as workers. But um, the kind of idea that they would do that and that they would, that that was their role and not kind of our role as um, workers, as people involved in the institution, as as those who would need to demand that and and shape what that needed to look like, um, that kind of expectation that that they would just sort of take care of you, I think is is an example in some ways of, of the way in which like certain kind of state configurations, which I, I'm not saying we shouldn't have, you know, that we should have support, we should have um, care from above, but, you know, in this kind of financialized reality, it's just not, that's not their interest, you know, and that's being very much exposed now that, um, that of course, they are not going to take care of us. They're doing the exact opposite and opportunizing uh, a moment of care in order to expel 
um, you know, thousands of workers. And, and that's sort of laying bare exactly what's happening. But there's there's been continually a desire and a, a sort of suggestion and dependency on the fact or reliance on the fact or the idea that these that the figure of the manager is the figure of, uh, of, of your sort of long-term care. And that, that is difficult to work against because it means uh, people don't get together. They don't want to rise up. They, don't, they wouldn't expect the worst of their manager because that, that manager is, is there to kind of hold them in some ways and, and the hierarchy itself is there to hold them. So, you know, I've, I see it a lot in the university that the managerial structure is there. And, and it, it could be very well that at some point it was a more caring, um, a caring apparatus, but the way in which it's operationalized by that Oedipal desire, but also that kind of pretense of, of the manager as one who cares for your, your life and your future is one that is incredibly effective as um, a way to depoliticize and neutralize political activity from below. So uh, speaking of the madness that Alan already mentioned, a troubling and darkly pessimistic thought I've been focusing on is that even though Deleuze and Guattari indeed wanted to find ways of liberating desires in a, if you will, a more benign fashion that would not collapse into this violent catharsis they themselves deemed suicidal uh, in Thousand Plateaus, and of course Guattari practiced this, collectively in his laboratory clinic, one is still left to wonder whether this is possible. What if it is indeed the violent rush that will actually always prevail? That there are these fascistic, uncontrollable urges of destroying subjectivity that are more exciting and more liberating and more powerful. So my fear is that this more patient uh, enjoyment of potential solidarities and collectivities might not capture the libidinal excitement uh, enough. So should we then instead expect barbarism to unfold rather than some sort of a new uh, collectivity? One is also reminded that, uh, remember in the context of Guattari's writing and uh, practice uh, post-68, it was still Indeed, consumer culture and capitalism that fared better than any ideas of socialism or uh, social collectivity and indeed became the worldwide channeler of desire. So can you give me some optimism, please? <laughs> That's a tall order in this particular moment. But but I would say, um, yes, I mean, I, I agree completely. You know, the, the, the liberation of desire, which is the capitalist liberation of desire, which is the, you know, what um, I don't completely agree with their analysis, but what Boltanski and Cipello, you know, would call the... the um, you know, the sort of cultural critique or the artistic critique versus the social critique and the, the severing of these two, um, you know, this kind of complete liberation of a, of a cultural or artistic set of desires, a desire, desires for certain kinds of freedom that then get picked up by the market and that are still being cultivated. I mean, you can see them being cultivated in consumer culture, but also in right-wing culture. 
in sort of the the this ultimate sort of quest for an unbridled, um, you know, or at least a rhetoric of an unbridled, completely free state where one has no obligations to others, etc., and where one one's freedom is a tyranny upon others, you know, is, is the justification for for the expulsion of others. You know, you have this side, and it is incredibly compelling. But I think. Um, the other side is also, and, and, you know, if you think about the kind of moments, the euphoric moments, um, politically euphoric moments or, or um, charged moments of like Black Lives Matter, for example, which appear as though they come as blips, but actually are very much to do with groups, small groups working all over uh, the world on sort of different kinds of self-care, um, collective care, and uh, political analysis, and how those groups then become activated in a different moment, and things do start to shift, and we start to see a sort of um, an attraction, for example, for for people to be um, involved with. So I do feel like, you know, there's two, there's two very polarized projects at play right now, and one, and they both are, um, you know, competing over the reworking and reconfiguration of desires, um, and, and one is um is you know really uh, compelling because of its consistency um of message and because of its um you know kind of speed acceleration you know excitement i suppose for those who are involved um and then there's another side which is a which is a really long project and is um in some ways composed of many different small groups who have been working over many many years or some that are newly forming and this proliferation of different groups smaller groups but who are trying to kind of work in relation to uh, more social justice issues also is reconfiguring desire and it's also very exciting and compelling for people who are involved in it so you know, right now the other side is absolutely winning. It's in power and it's incredibly sophisticated and it's using some of the very technologies of small group kind of work of, um, you know, using the apparatus of the church, of grassroots religious organizing, of grassroots community organizing. It's making use of some strategies um, of the left and some, some of these practices that we have been describing today, but, you know, obviously turning them towards something that is incredibly self and globally destructive. So, so, you know, one has to, I can't really say that I feel terribly optimistic at this moment, but I do, I think, understand that our project is still this one of, um, of trying in the places that we exist um, and also as part of broader movements to really situate our work in the kind of reconfiguration of desire, of institution, um, and, and kind of building up these different groups that can then come together in various moments to topple monuments, for example, <laughs> and, and hopefully begin to topple managerial structures and by virtue of that, um, governmental ones. But one of our problems is we're just swinging. I mean, on the political level, as we know, we just swing, we are swinging back and forth between, you know, a similar kind of Oedipal configuration of the state. And I think until we can kind of get rid of some of that, until we can sort of see that it's not going to be Jeremy Corbyn that's going to lead us into a different world, it's going to be, you know, many different groups who are able to do this analytic work that until that 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 capacity builds up we're not going to be able to topple you know that system which is not not ever going to completely um, feel liberatory or achieve sort of goals of social justice we, we need more sophisticated ways of um, being a part of decision making and, and sort of taking care on local levels in order for that to 
um, to really take place. So, you know, I have some like optimism in the sense, you know, I work with a lot of young people who are very, you know, very, very, the kind of excitement and um, drive that you're describing, the destructive drive. I see it equally um, in the young people that I see organizing. I see their incredible excitement around moments of Black Lives Matter and moments of um, ecological awareness and um, sort of thought and protest. And I also see them developing um, against all odds these kinds of groups, you know, um, and trying, um, in, in their case, trying really against all odds because everything that they've been brought up with is counter to this idea of group work. They've been so immersed in, um, in the, the sort of culture of, this, of the self and of the individual and of improvement and of capitalism as an answer to that, that the work that they have to do is absolutely tremendous, maybe even more than our generation has had to do, um, having had some experience of that in the culture. So, you know, but they're doing that work and they're, um, they're thrilled by it and they are um, out on the streets and they're continuing to work in the aftermath of these euphoric moments, political moments as well. So I have to believe with Kier and others that there's an incredible potential um, in what's coming um, and also our, what our role as kind of older people. <laughs> Just one more question for me that uh, focuses on the current global situation. Uh, in a recent episode, Stefano Harney was quick to dismiss the idea of social and physical uh, distancing as misnomers. For him, it's strictly capitalism that is the social distancer, not any of these other forms of recent social practices. Still, uh, he noted that any subversive idea of collective study has become more difficult in the present situation uh, because such forms of togetherness might closely entail some physical uh, being together, all of which, of course, is more difficult to do now or, or perhaps to achieve in any real way virtually. So in terms of mental health, what might be some of the future issues you can think of regarding increasing uncertainty that is now irreducibly coupled with uh, physical separation from each other? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's, um, you know, Stefano's right in terms of um, the kind of thinking about this as social isolation. I mean, my experience has been quite um, varied in terms of the question of isolation in this moment. I mean, there's been a um, certain degree of uh, physical isolation, obviously the kind of pedagogy of the street and the fear of the other is something that has been really cultivated by this moment and it's something we're going to have to work very actively against because it's already there in the culture and it's already a very strong you know kind of the xenophobia and sort of fear of of the other's body etc or already really present with us in this moment um even before covid but i also think that there's been tremendous um i don't know forms of collective work online or you know we have seen you know quite a quite a lot of collective mobilization between mutual aid groups and between black lives matter there's a number of kind of new working groups that are developing on social media you know my students are you know involved in more groups now than they were involved with when they were in the university it seems um and uh our ability to kind of have the broader 
kind of full analysis of what's going on everywhere is diminished, but I'm not sure that our capacity to study is entirely diminished. I mean, the bodily side of it is incredibly important, but it's not um, the only side of it. You know, there is a, a side of being together, which is about sort of doing things together differently. And I would say, um, you know, to some extent, um, you know, things like the classroom being um, outside of the bricks and mortar institutions has allowed for different kinds of other ways of working. For me, for example, with students, Fred and Fred and um, and Stefano were also talking about, you know, how online learning potentially gives us the chance to admit many students into our classrooms that wouldn't be admitted because of the swipe card regimes at many universities. You know, for example, we might be able to teach and have in our classrooms much more diverse student bodies um, in this kind of scenario. And we might be able to, you know, really work at the kind of um, privatization mechanisms of the university. And it's sort of uh, the way in which it supports kind of different forms of striation. So I think, you know, we have this these kind of possibilities also through this moment to think about what we do together. With my students, I do various things. We, we think together still, but we also um, have been involved in other kinds of like cooking together and things like that, convivial things because of the mental health issues, because of the feelings of isolation that they've been having. But I would say we meet far off, far more often. There's a lot of lot more kind of subgroups um, and different groups uh, forming all of the time. So I think, you know, I think we can't discount the fact that there is study taking place, that we, we are going to have to work against the pedagogy of the idea of isolation, which is just kind of accelerating something that is, of course, already in capitalist culture um, and is already in xenophobic capitalist culture, which which are the dominant frames, unfortunately, um, of governmental power and right now but but I think we also have to acknowledge that there's many many different um, kind of groups forming in this moment and that that will also have a legacy and hopefully a legacy that's beyond this kind of fear or this kind of feeling of wanting to be isolated though I have no doubt that we'll have tremendous work to do on that after this. Thanks very much Jenna it's been it's been really great talking about all these matters with you. Thank you Jenna. Yeah it's been really interesting they're great questions and um yeah, I, I'm sure that there are many more conversations to be had and we'll have to sort of revisit them um, from time to time to understand and chart where we where we are going from here. Mm-hmm.